Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the State Transportation Commissioner sounds the alarm on worker shortages within his department. Then, anti-abortion rights activists hope this year's anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision is the last. And a mammoth endangered fish is detected in Jackson for the first time in over 25 years. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is flush with federal infrastructure money, but the State Department of Transportation lacks necessary staff to oversee new road and bridge projects. That's according to Brad White, who's MDOT commissioner. He took the podium at yesterday's Stennis Capital Press Forum. We've lost a lot of institutional knowledge. Uh, in the last 12 months, we've lost over 30 engineers. Uh, and that has um, put us in, in quite a strain in being able to continue to meet uh, the pre-construction uh, work that has to go into what we do, to meet the planning necessary, and to be able to carry out our uh, day-to-day operations. So what exactly does this loss of institutional knowledge and experience mean? That's what our Kobe Vance asked the commissioner after his address. It means that the department is not as equipped as we need to be in order to carry out our mission of uh, addressing the transportation needs around the state. Uh, By having a fully equipped department, we would be better able to to work in-house at a cost savings of the taxpayer to do certain works within the pre-construction phases of these projects uh, that would help us uh, uh, in our inspecting of project construction projects around the state. Um, so it, it's just a matter that the Department of Transportation has a pretty uh, large mission that we're set out to meet across the state. And, for example, in the last 12 months, we've lost 30 engineers. Uh, we're regularly uh, losing maintenance technicians and our frontline workers around the state that help uh, carry out different issues on a daily basis that the, the people see. And by virtue of having that, um, that loss, it leads us where... Uh, the same amount of work still being required to be done. It's done by less people, which increased stresses uh, in that situation. So uh, we're just simply not equipped to, uh, to the level that we need to be to be able to ensure our ability to provide the services to the taxpayers that they deserve. Do you think these staffing shortages are going to hinder your efforts to try to get these projects underway as you all get this federal funding from the, uh, from the no. infrastructure relief bill? No, because we'll do what we've got to do to get the work done, which is indicated by the fact that we've been spending more and more money on consultants and things like that. So we'll, we'll hit our deadlines, and we'll still provide a service to the, the people, but I can't guarantee that it's as cost-effective as what it would have been if we were able to, to have the, the staff inside to do a lot of that work, if that makes sense. Earlier you mentioned that you all have some counties with zero Department of Transportation employees. What does that mean for the average person if they want to get like their, their streets updated or have, you know, bring their concerns about, you know, potholes or areas that might be dangerous to drivers? 
Well, it just means that it may take a little longer for our uh, flow crews to be able to get to that particular assignment. Uh, with less uh, staff doing that, uh, it means the geographic area of those that we have uh, grows, which means that their response time is going to grow as well. And then you mentioned earlier that you were planning to talk with the state personnel board um, and the LBO about how y'all could restructure to try to, you know, increase pay while also not asking for more money. How, how, what are your plans to do that? Well, it's just a matter of we plan to work within the structure that the state personnel board already has in place. And, and they, a lot of what we're seeking is authority that they can give us. But we want to work with them because they're the professionals in being able to set salaries and knowing whether or not it's competitive and in line with where uh, it would need to be. So they're very important partners in being able to determine how to put together the most reasonable plan uh, that's truly a legitimate plan that we can in good faith offer to the legislature. The legislature passed a, a, up to 3% raise last, uh, last uh, session. Uh, do you think that's been able to have an impact on you know your employees currently? It has for those that were eligible for them. And what our problem is is that within the state personnel board system, you've got some employees that uh, their salary due to being with the agency for an extended period of time uh, may be placed at what they call uh, market. Well, if you were already at market, the 3% raise didn't apply to you. And so most of the positions that we're trying to retain and recruit or positions internally that are already at that level. So the 3% raise didn't apply to them. So it helped the many employees that it was designed to help to bring up to a minimum pay, uh, but it, we were unable to use those funds uh, to address the, the positions that uh, or the, were losing in the most critical of ways. What do you think it would take to be able to make it more competitive uh, for employees for, you know, say like surrounding states or, you know, firms that are in Mississippi but might pay more? I don't know. I mean, we're, we're devising that plan now. I don't expect it to be an earth-shattering number. Uh, I just think it's enough of a realignment uh, that would allow for us to recruit and bring in new engineers that also allows us to show a career path where they can continue to advance within the agency, knowing that they'll continue to hit financial benchmarks. So I don't think it's a, a, a gigantic number, and I think that's indicative of the fact that I'm not going to have to go to the legislature with my handout for funds to pay for it. Brad White is Mississippi's Department of Transportation Commissioner. Coming up, anti-abortion rights activists hope this year's anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision is the last. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. This past weekend marked the 49th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in all U.S. states. Advocates on both sides of the issue wonder if it will be the last. That's because of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, which originated over Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. The court heard oral arguments for Dobbs in December. 
Now stakeholders wait, likely until summer, for a final ruling. People who favor abortion rights believe a reversal of Roe would strike a blow to the young poor women in Mississippi who are the most likely to seek abortion services. But abortion rights opponents like Terry Herring of Choose Life Mississippi instead look to a potential overturn as a watershed moment for human rights. You know, I anticipate a huge shift on the abortion issue after the ruling of the Dobbs decision. I think we um, we have seen 49 years of, of a bad decision made by the court in 1973, and we anticipate um, that abortion will change after June. Um, how much it changes uh, is what everyone's waiting to find out, is how far the judges will go in granting Mississippi its petition. In one sense, our petition uh, legally is only 15 weeks um, to rule on the 15-week ban. However, as, as most people know, um, the request was made by uh, Mississippi to um, go further than 15 weeks in the sense of uh, making a decision about Roe. I don't think we see that 15-week bill moving forward under the framework of Roe, Roe and Casey. Again, we our hands have been bound state by state. Every single law that we pass, no matter uh, no matter what it is, we have gone through the federal court system. It's time for that to end. I can't imagine that these justices want to continue to be the arbiters of this uh, abortion issue. It's it's not legally sound. It's not medically sound. It is not in the Constitution, and it's time for it to end. I think Rose days are numbered, and we are ready to retire it. As you mentioned, the court, the high court, Supreme Court, is debating Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Oral arguments were last month. If you look at polls, the majority of Americans want there to be access to abortion. Well, when you say access to abortion, I I think that that will be decided state by state. I think there's been a lot of misconception that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that abortion will be outlawed in all 50 states. I think this will permit the people uh, to really evaluate what, what people don't know what is even in row. Your average person doesn't understand that abortion is not legal in America just in the first trimester. Our abortion clinic in Mississippi goes up to 16 weeks, but we even have uh, abortions um, up to 20 weeks in Mississippi in certain cases. So you have this misconception by the public that um, if if they disagree with abortion in the case of rape, they think abortion should be available because what if someone is raped? Um, there is such a small category of um, abortions that fall into these hard case scenarios that are that are currently ruling the abortion issue. So I think uh, you know for people to rethink Roe and to have the opportunity through their state legislatures to decide um, what needs to happen in that state. And in Mississippi, I I think we can come up with solutions that allow the children to live. Well, how do you feel about abortion in the cases that you mentioned? Well, you mentioned rape. What about rape and incest? 
You know, I, I don't believe a child should be put to death for the crime of his father. We, we don't put children to death because their father committed a crime. And I think with proper counseling and help, we can help women, women work through the, the hard decisions. And um, will, will a, a woman feel, really feel better about a rape if she also takes the life of the, the child? And I, I just find that very hard to believe that the soul of any woman is helped by taking the life of her child. The Supreme Court has a six to three conservative majority. For you, is that the best scenario that you can see that this could possibly be the end of Roe v. Wade? You know, we're hopeful that we'll have a six three decision. I think it's better for the court, it's better for the country to see kind of a resounding change to this law um, and uh, again just different uh, a different thought process of of how to govern terry herring with choose life mississippi thank you for speaking with us on this controversial and very personal for some subject thank you for asking me Coming up, an extraordinary find in a Jackson River. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A massive prehistoric fish called a gulf sturgeon was recently detected by scientists in the Pearl River in Jackson. It's the first time that species has been found in Mississippi's capital region since 1996. The sturgeon in question apparently swam more than 200 miles upstream from the Gulf of Mexico and somehow made it over the Jackson Waterworks Dam. Michael Andre studies marine ecology at the University of Southern Mississippi. This particular individual was um, first captured in, as part of a, um, a tagging effort in 2017, and at that time it was uh, just over five feet long, and then it has not been handled by a researcher at all, but using the telemetry tags that we put in, they're little transmitters that allow us to track where the fish go in the river and then in their marine and estuarine feeding areas. So we know the fish is still alive, which is great. It's been four years later. So presumably it has grown a bit since then. <laughs> so you're not holding on to it. It's out in the wild, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Um, so our, our process is to, we, um, we capture them. We tag them using a couple different types of tags. Uh, but for, for a lot of the fish, we surgically implant them with an acoustic transmitter. And then we set out receivers throughout the river and throughout the estuary, throughout the Gulf of Mexico, and we can really track where these fish are going. Do you know where this fish went? We do know a little bit about this fish. So Gulf surgeon are anadromous, which means they derive their um, energy, their feeding, all occurs within estuarine and marine waters, and then they return to fresh water for spawning, and Gulf sturgeon do it as well for, um, like, holding energy conservation times. And so we know that this fish um, 
entered into the the Pearl River right around the the be the beginning of April, and then it moved all the way up the Pearl River above or right right by um, just south of Ross Barnett Reservoir, um, right around Lafleur's Bluff State Park, and then it it came back down again, and then passed um, back into an area below where the the uh, lower sills are the pools bluff sills right around the the end of may and hopefully it's now back out in the the estuary and marine waters feeding again describe the fish for us i understand that it's referred to as a living dinosaur yeah so that's that's a a common description <laughs> for a lot of surgeon um they haven't they haven't changed their their basic morphological appearance since uh, about 200 million years ago when they sort of diverged from their closest ancestor, the paddlefish, or as they're also locally called spoonbills. Um, Gulf sturgeon have a body shape that most closely resembles a shark, even though they are a, a bony fish. They have a cartilaginous um, skeleton. They have uh, five scoot rows that run down along their body. They have a a uh, forked tail, a heterocircle tail, where the upper lobe is lower or longer than the lower lobe, which makes them also resemble sharks. And then they have sort of this cool torpedo-shaped body where down along their elongated snout, they have electrical receptors that are on the underneath side and four barbels, kind of like uh, whiskers on a catfish, and then a very uh, tube-shaped mouth that sits underneath all of that. How important is this fish? to the ecosystem? Gulf sturgeon are, are um, so they've, unfortunately, they've been listed as a, as a protected species since 1991, but they are a fabulous fish for our ecosystems. They're oftentimes referred to sort of as the, the canary in the coal mine. If a, if a river system is generally doing well, you'll see, and it's a natal river for a gulf sturgeon, you'll see gulf sturgeon within those, those rivers. In estuarine areas, it lets us have uh, a good indication of where good feeding grounds are. Uh, they feed on uh, invertebrates that, that live in the, the sediments when they're in the, the estuary and around marine waters. So if you've got healthy uh, productivity at that stage, you'll find gulf sturgeon there. Can you eat them? So gulf sturgeon were... <laughs> were consumed as a, as a food fish. Um, that's what led to their protected status. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a brief but incredibly intensive fishery that was primarily for their, their roe, their eggs. That's caviar. Um, and basically all sturgeon worldwide throughout their, their distribution, since they're only found in uh, the northern hemisphere, um, almost all of them have experienced uh, large declines in part because of uh, the caviar fishery. But where it's it's legal to, to harvest them, different species, not legal at all for Gulf sturgeon, but where it is legal, there are, there are people that certainly do eat them. Just don't do it for Gulf sturgeon. <laughs> and they're ate in caviar. Yes. Yeah, their eggs are sold as caviar. There's a large aquaculture um, industry specifically so that uh, – uh, caviar can keep coming to market. We haven't seen it for Gulf sturgeon, but certainly for other sturgeon species, there are um, also um, black markets for the, the caviar, illegal harvest of the fishes that are then 
you know, used to sell their caviar because prices are quite high. Well, the fact that they spawned around the Pearl River somewhere, that's good news for what you're doing? Absolutely, yes. We um, So we will continue to track and monitor um, Gulf sturgeon in the Pearl and Pascagoula as a portion of a couple different funded projects. And what we're hoping to do is with the spawning site um, study in particular is we're partnering with researchers from Mississippi State University, Northern Arizona University, as well as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And we're scanning the river, um, trying to identify areas that are suitable for spawning. They require sort of a gravel bottom for their eggs to be deposited on. And then after hatching for about four to ten days, uh, the post-hatch larval gulf sturgeon will actually hang out underneath the rocks um, before starting their migration down. So we, we need to try to identify where those habitats are within the system. And then we're using the telemetry data set so that we can sort of narrow where those reaches are within both the Pearl and the Pascagoula systems. Um, that gives us good ideas on, you know, what sort of management efforts could be potentially implemented to produce more sturgeon in these systems. Anything that I didn't ask you that's important to mention? I don't think so. Uh, to me, the to me the biggest thing is, um, you know, if if a fisherman does encounter a Gulf sturgeon, I would 100% love to know about it. They are, um, again, it's illegal to harvest them. Um, really, any sort of um, catching of them is also illegal, but it does uh, it does happen unintentionally, especially on um, trot lines. And if it does happen, I, I would just I would appreciate them reaching out. My my information is on the University of Southern Mississippi's website, and you know that would be it would be very helpful for us. Professor Michael Andres with the University of Southern Mississippi. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time no and speaking with us. Yeah, thank you for speaking with me. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Have a good day.